Hey, Lizzie. I have a story for you. It has a hippie and a farm boy, a loss of vision, and an awakening to how this relationship revolved around one individual. It's a misconnection. Welcome to Misconnections. We're both Elizabeth. I'm Elizabeth Via, a.k.a. Lizzie. And I'm Elizabeth Wyndham, a.k.a. Beth. Misconnections is a podcast that explores the longing to connect and the circumstances that stand in our way. Each episode will bring a true story of a misconnection and an expert guest to help us unpack it so that we can all get better at making real, meaningful connections that feel good to us. That's why we started this show. After a series of our own misconnections in dating, friendships, and family relationships, we decided to get some help. So Lizzie, are you ready to hear this misconnection story? I can't wait. Without further ado, here's the story. I know it sounds cliche, but the first moment I saw you, I immediately fell in love. It was the early 70s, and we were just college kids in Bowling Green, Ohio, searching for meaning and community and finding it in a group of Jesus-loving hippies. I was out of my element as a young boy from a dairy farm, the proverbial hayseed still in my hair. But you were already a bona fide hippie hailing from the suburbs of Cleveland, who had gotten saved right there on the streets of Bowling Green. When I saw you at my first meeting, I was immediately smitten, falling in love on the spot. Your spirituality radiated off you like a light, and I was spellbound. It was love at first sight. The attraction was one-sided at the start. I was just some nerdy country kid who had stumbled into a meeting one day after all. Why would you want anything to do with me? but I was on a mission, attending meeting after meeting, seven days a week, eager to become closer and closer to you and Jesus. The leaders in the group tried to discourage anything of the kind between us attendees, but it didn't matter. All I wanted was to be with you. Our courtship was unique, to say the least. While others our age were heading hand in hand to parties, bars, and concerts, You and I spent our first few dates going door to door together, spreading the gospel and making quick trips to Dunkin' Donuts. Our love grew over coffee and donuts and our shared faith. It was heaven. I can't pinpoint exactly when, but in time, you began looking at me the way I had always looked at you. We got married young, instantly thrown into the struggles of getting by on my measly teacher's salary while you finished school. I remember times when all we had to eat in the house was peanut butter and jelly, but it didn't shake us. We had each other. We had our youth, we had our dreams, and we knew we would get through it together. Now, it's been 50 years of getting through it together. Though I've realized over time in many ways, you had gotten through most of it alone. It all became clear to me in 2015 when I had my stroke, which left my 
eyes hazy and unfocused, I would never see the same way again. With that, everything shifted. I could hardly read, I couldn't drive, I couldn't move through the world on my own. I was forced into retirement from teaching and coaching track and field, the jobs I had dedicated decades of my life to. Suddenly, you became my eyes, shepherding me around my life and setting aside your own so that I could still function as normally as possible. But I was never as appreciative as I should have been, constantly too wrapped up in myself to notice everything you had always done for me. I look back on certain moments and wince at the man I was. Like when you found a pair of binoculars in the house, which miraculously helped me see, I was elated and all I could think about was how it meant I could still coach. And of course I did. Never mind how getting back into coaching meant you had to drive me to and from every single practice and meet, despite the fact you hated driving. Never mind how my dependence on you dominated your life and I only had eyes for my happiness and joy, never bothering to consider yours. You were constantly by my side as I coached. Your arm looped through mine so I could walk without stumbling into people. You became sort of an assistant coach for me, attached at my hip so I could keep doing what I loved while disabled. I slowly began to see just how much you had given up for me throughout our relationship. And I started asking myself, how much have I ever given up for you? A few years ago, one of our sons told me that he had never liked running. The entire time he ran, he suffered through it just to please me. I was shocked. How was this possible? How had I been so self-absorbed not to be able to see that my own son wasn't happy? There was so much I had been blind to for so long. Everything had revolved around me and my interests and my career. I had been so incredibly selfish for so long with you and the kids always on the periphery. With my increased vision problems, has come an increased understanding of what a jerk I was. When my mom's health started waning, I needed to see her more and more often. You dropped everything to drive me the hour and a half there and the hour and a half back every time. During those car rides, you would share things with me that I'd never thought to ask you about before. You told me about how much you struggled when your own parents were dying and how you had always taken the long drive to Cleveland to see them completely alone. It had never even crossed my mind that you were going through such hardship since I was so consumed by my running, my marathon training, and my coaching, and my teaching. I totally missed it, blind to all of the ways I should have been there for you. Can't physically see as well as I used to, but in far more important ways, I am clearer-eyed now than I ever have been before. I can see how throughout raising our kids, you had done so mostly as a single parent. I can see how I prioritized the kids I was coaching over the four of our own. 
I can see the magnitude of how much you sacrificed for me and how oblivious I had been through it all. When I look at the beautiful relationship you and I have now, I'm frustrated knowing we could have had this years ago if only I hadn't been so self-involved. I take an interest in your passions now, waking up early to bake with you and making things together in our wood shop. We grow apples, cherries, peaches, and blueberries in our orchard, working together to harvest all this bounty. I regret that I kept us from having this life together sooner, but I'm grateful that I'm here now, that we're here now, connecting with each other more openly and freely than we ever have before. Lizzie, Mm -hmm. what are your feels feeling about this story? Ugh, Beth, when the story started, I wanted to make a joke. (laughs) When we got to this point, (laughs) I wanted to make the joke that, like, see, if we wait long enough, even men can see the downside to patriarchy, (laughs) which is, you know, what, you know, it was stirring in the beginning parts of the story. But when the storyteller took such clear ownership Mm -hmm. for what he genuinely learned decades into a relationship, I find that to be so admirable and how he didn't just notice it, but he initiated further conversation around it and he opened himself up to feedback and made changes and how this connection that was once missed is now closer and stronger than ever. And I think that that process and it's in and of itself, regardless of how it lands or where it ends, it's so honest and vulnerable and brave. And I'm so happy that we get to tell this story. How are you doing with this story, Beth? Yeah, I am also really happy to tell this story. Mm -hmm. This story actually makes me think about when Harry met Sally, all those like long-term couples, vignettes throughout the movie. But this one kind of like goes behind the scenes beyond the love at first sight. And the storyteller, like you said, honestly shares with us he wasn't actually seeing his partner for a good chunk of their marriage. And I also think like the story is kind of unique compared to the other stories that we're sharing this season because this feels almost like a love letter to his partner as well. Like you see the growth that's shown from the misconnection and it takes us on a journey of self-awareness communication, change of behavior, and more. And I really love that. Yeah. And I I love that even though I don't relate to it personally Mm -hmm. in terms of what the story arc is, I think that there's so much to relate to in this story. And I'm excited to dig into that. Definitely. So for this next part of the episode, we're going to bring in a special guest to talk to us about how we can go about creating new forms of communication new connections, and implementing change behavior in our relationships. Rick Jackson is a licensed marriage and family therapist in the state of California, where he has a full practice working with couples dealing with relational distress and individuals with varying life challenges, ranging from trauma, addictions, spiritual abuse, deconstruction of faith, and executive coaching. 
He's certified as a restoration therapist and as a discernment counselor, as well as having extensive training in the encounter-centered couples therapy and emotion-focused couples therapy. In addition, Rick also has training in the integration of mental and physical health and EMDR. Rick completed his Master of Science in Marriage and Family Therapy at Fuller Theological Seminary, and he also serves as a supervisor to pre-licensed therapists. Rick and his wife, Vicki, have been married for almost 49 years. They are parents of three very talented musicians, their adult twin sons, and their daughter, and are the proud grandparents of 1.9 grandchildren. <laughs> How exciting! Yeah, Coming! Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Miss Connections, Rick. Oh, Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it for both of you, definitely. Thank you. I'm guessing the 1.9 grandchildren means there's a grandchildren on the way. Is that and already <laughs> almost a week beyond the two times? Okay, got it, got it. <laughs> so, <laughs> Just make it, make it sure 1. we're, we're doing the math. Yeah. <laughs> 1.999. <laughs> so. Before we jump into yeah. the conversation, we would love to know, like, how do you feel listening to this story? What did it make you think uh, about? Yeah. Well, it does kind of play like a movie. I, it could be a movie in a way. So it has an endearing part to it. You know, it's like the love at first sight, but also someone that's trying to pursue someone that hasn't quite gotten that love at first sight <laughs> experience in a way. And then just uh, kind of that, uh, the seasons of life. And obviously he's in a season of life where there are impacts of aging and his vision and how that affected his uh, career. But it also affected his seeing in a very positive way. I would agree with things ranging from kind of a patriarchal system that is almost like, it's almost like swimming in the water. A fish just swims in the water. And uh, there can be systems that we don't even recognize are there. Because I've worked with couples that might be in this egocentric or patriarchal system. It does seem like his spouse, we don't have her story, but she seems very enduring. Whereas if somebody were really harshly against something, it wouldn't be playing this story out as well. Mm -hmm. So there's something about her that is very, very uh, special as well, I think. But uh, there is a shift of his seeing that I think has a, uh, a combination of, it's interesting that he loses his sight or a significant amount of his sight, but then he sees in a different way, almost like more emotionally. And that capacity to do that is just really unique and special. And I love how they are investing in their, what would we would imagine to be their final years in a way that is so much more enriching than what we would have imagined even at the beginning. So it's very mm -hmm. special, yes, really, really so a special. beautiful story. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, I'm thinking about the storyteller and how they're a teacher, right? And so they've kind of modeled this unique experience of still choosing to learn mm -hmm. in the process of dealing with a disability and losing sight. And we get to kind of witness this awakening through this story. But at the same time, the crux of this misconnection is that there's an unequal partnership yeah. within this marriage. And, you know, we're just kind of curious, is it possible to find meaningful connection when one partner is doing the majority of the sacrificing and emotional laboring? I would say... If both have are holding to almost like different awarenesses, that can it can become more challenging for that because there's going to be some level of again egocentricity and some level of unfairness on the other part, and quite often that's a lot of the couples that I'm working with. There's some mm -hmm. level of unfairness mm -hmm. and a self-centeredness that's going on, and if those two systems they usually more collide rather than they are able to 
find ways to uh, intermingle together because it does require moving out of resentment, but it also does require becoming uh, not egocentric in a way. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so that can be challenging, but I do think it's very much possible, but it does change the way we are thinking. And one of my favorite quotes from... um, A spiritual mystic is a gentleman by the name of Richard Rohr, and one of his statements that he says is, we don't think our way into a new way of living, we live our way into a new way of thinking. Mm. And one of the things you'll notice in the story is in the latter part, it is how they're living their life that actually changes their thinking, or at least his. I don't know about her, but there's a way of thinking because it's like he's investing and engaging into things that are outside of his egocentric awareness, Mm. and it's in that that it changes how he thinks. Uh, so there's a way of living to me that really does inspire us to think differently more than somehow we're going to think our way into a new way of living. So I right. see that in on the page. Yeah. And how the context changing opened up new space for new awareness. Yes. And how when that awareness happened, you know, like you said, it lived into that mm-hmm. and, you know, created a new opportunity for change in their relationship yes um and i really love what you said about the fish swimming in the water because it does seem like that like we all bring with us ideals that we have Mm -hmm. for how romantic relationships or even families friendships other relational dynamics should work yes but oftentimes those aren't even we're not aware of those if we're aware of them we're just assuming we're all operating on the same ideals so that we're not communicating about them or not inquiring or being curious about where other people that we're in relationship with Mm -hmm. are coming from. So I'd love to know, how do you think we can do the work to identify what we're bringing into a relationship? Um, Let's say a romantic relationship, Mm -hmm. you know, share that with a partner and then, you know, negotiate that to put things on the table versus, you know, be fish swimming in the water (laughs) for extended periods of time. Yeah. Well, there's a number of ways. I actually have a little chart that I've developed, uh, ways that we communicate that lead to connection and ways that we communicate that lead to disconnection. Mm -hmm. And each of them are almost the antithesis of the other. Mm -hmm. One example that can be a little complex, but I'll see if I can make this in, in this space a little simple is is that sometimes we share things with someone and we think we're sharing our feelings. Like if I said, I feel like you're not listening to me, mm-hmm. okay? I'm sharing a feeling, but actually there's a potential I'm not sharing a feeling in that moment. I'm actually sharing a meaning that I've made of our experiences that have been repeated over and over again. So if I come to you and say, I really want to share something with you, but I feel like you don't ever listen to me, I've already created a an atmosphere that is more adversarial in that disclosure. Mm -hmm. But if I could come in leading with a a feeling and let my meanings be almost like wet paint, that they're still pliable, Mm -hmm. then there's a possibility that I can engage in discovering the space between the two of us in a better way. And on the other side of that, if I'm not open to your experience, then that creates a block of being able to be empathetic to something that's going on that I didn't see. I think that capacity to be empathetic and that capacity to be open to negotiate the meanings that I've made while I am able to share a feeling uh, that I'm experiencing because feelings are information and they're, I know some people describe them as waves and you know they come and go, but when we try to block a feeling, we end up creating a stronger feeling that is more difficult to work through almost. So I don't know if that helps, but that's one of the ways that I imagine being able to share feelings, being able to negotiate our meanings and being able to be empathetic to someone's feelings uh, rather than defended against them. 
Yeah. Beth, we need that chart, I think. Uh, <laughs> yes. I feel like, oh my gosh, I am in therapy right now. <laughs> we are sitting so on the couch. I know we are on the couch. No, Ooh. I do love that because, you know, the difference I think for, you know, I feel this way when this happens is there's a statement of fact mm-hmm. behind that versus, yeah. you know, I noticed that I felt this way when this happened. I'm assuming that means this coming from you. Yeah. Is that what you meant? Or right. let's talk about it from a way that is not necessarily statements of fact, but exactly. rather like observations right, right, that right. we can put on the table and and organize together almost. Exactly. Yeah, the fact is, is a really tough thing to let that be how a conversation is being developed. Mm-hmm. Funny stories, I was working with this couple one time, one was a, a Christian and the other one was an, a non-Christian. And the Christian would say, God has told me, and the non-Christian would say, the fact is. <laughs> and I'm going, oh, it seems like both of you have an authority. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how do, we, how do we let that be more pliable? How do we let that be more curious, uh, more open mm-hmm. is really important. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. This is just kind of bringing up how, you know, I'm a person who uh, struggles with effectively um, communicating their feelings or, you know, acknowledging actually what I'm feeling. But <laughs> I think learning how to communicate, learning the language of your feelings is so valuable uh-huh. in all of your relationships and how that like life is part of the journey of learning how to communicate that, <laughs> you know, and just even the complexity of I've been in conversations where people will say, well, I can't make you feel. It's you feeling what you feel. Mm-hmm. And and so there's like this level of, yes, that's true, but also <laughs> there are actions that are creating these feelings. And so there's just kind of like this dance. And what's interesting about this story is it's definitely like – they probably had many versions of those conversations over the years, or maybe not. Maybe mm-hmm. they just had just the day-to-day conversations because of life was happening. And so with this encounter of the disability and the waking of the individual, there was like an opening to a new way of a connection. And so like they were able to adjust and change and connect after decades, which again, really beautiful Mm -hmm. to witness and hear. How do we establish the right dynamics early in relationships that allow us as individuals to evolve as relationships evolve? Like, how do you approach that decades in? Yeah, this is a great question. You know, I... A little statement I have, I have very few statements. I usually find a statement, so I've had somebody already said, I just didn't know it. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) But uh, one of the statements that I uh, kind of foster is that uh, how we love is what brings us together, but it is how we repair that will keep us together. Hmm. Because here's what happens is like, unless a couple is in the movie Hangover and they wake up after a drunken night and find out they were married, we almost always have are finding a partner that is something like, where have you been all my life? Because it's actually been a deficit in their, what they grew up with. Or, and sometimes it's a meaningful thing, is it feels so similar in a positive way that we're continuing with a story. So we usually find someone that we're either gonna, in a way, finish the work that didn't get finished or continue the experience that we were having. That tends to be what we find. Mm-hmm. 
So nobody starts a relationship saying, like, you're really controlling and you're really angry. Hey, why don't we get married or something like that? <laughs> That's exactly yeah. what I'm looking for. <laughs> That's what I'm looking for, That's right. on my list. <laughs> so we don't have that. So we have these positive expectations, and they're meaningful. They kind of cover the whole scale of our psychology, what's conscious and even unconscious in my view. But then we bump into life. And then what happens in life is we each draw out our survival strategies of how we did that, usually in our family systems, whatever those look like, and they just don't translate well. And if we leave those unrepaired, what happens, we shift from positive expectations about a relationship in a way to negative, but what makes it even worse is it will shift into negative characterizations in time. Because negative expectation, we have a real hard time talking about finances or about sexual intimacy or parenting or whatever it is. But when we shift into negative characterization, we're talking about my spouse is impossible to please, they're selfish, they're et cetera, et cetera. And now we have characterological deficits. And if we don't repair, that narrative almost becomes entrenched. Mm -hmm. And so to me, the goal uh, that I encourage with young couples is they have found some someone in life that is either going to help them to continue the work they're doing or to help to repair from the work that it, it happened. That's like a razor's edge. Mm -hmm. But there's the potential that if we're really intentional and continue to show and express love to each other, but we're also very intentional in repairing, that the repairing helps us to prevent creating an alternative narrative about how I see you. And I think that's a really important part. That actually reminds me a lot of something that when I was married in my 20s and navigating what was next for that relationship, um, my therapist brought up the concept. And like kind of like you said, I actually don't know if this is something that is commonly said or that just something that she was saying in that moment, but that for our generation in particular, if, you know, long-term serious relationships are your thing, you'll likely have multiple of those in mm -hmm. your lifetime. And sometimes you'll have those multiple relationships with the same person. Exactly. Because they'll change. And kind of to what you were saying is that when you hold on to the idea of like, this is how it felt, this is how it should always feel, right. or this is who you were when I chose you, this is who you should always be, that we don't get to kind of evolve as our relationship evolves, as the experience and the context changes around us. Mm -hmm. And so I'd love to know what are some tools people can lean on to continue to find connection as relationships find different forms? Yeah, I guess it does depend too. I mean, you know, way culturally, the idea of marriage is, you know, 30, 50 years, we, you know, we're living longer. Quite often the relationships are starting at an older age. So we have a lot of space where we are living in our autonomy and then we're having to develop this sense of usness and in that usness uh, there's this can be this collision of we don't lose our identity but we are in a way are forming another identity let's call that us mm -hmm. how do we foster what's best for us as each of us are even changing and evolving and you know whether it's physical things, emotional things, um, creative things, whatever they are, how do, we, how do we welcome those things with each other while we're also continuing to evolve and things are changing? I would tease that I've been married to the same woman, but that woman has changed about three or four times over those years. <laughs> I've, I've never changed, <laughs> of course except not. for my, of course my color yeah. of my hair. <laughs> but yeah, we, we sometimes are able to to work through the process that allows us to continue to have the change 
And that's the evolving of the relationship. And sometimes we bump up against resistance because in reality it takes two to have a relationship, but it takes one to not. And sometimes someone isn't able to evolve or isn't able to welcome change. And when we bump up against that kind of resistance, the sustainability of relationship becomes a concern or an issue for sure. Can I ask a follow-up question on that? Yeah. As someone who lived that version of things yeah. in terms of bumping up against that resistance to change and understanding where that end would eventually lie because of that, something that I often think about and may or may not talk about in therapy often, so this is just me <laughs> giving a second opinion, for people who are listening who are not in an existing long-term relationship mm-hmm. but are looking for connection that maybe has the opportunity to grow over time. What are some of the ways that we can start to learn about the other person in terms of their ability to be open as we change and evolve, their ability to be, as far as we know now, a good partner for that opportunity in the future? It's it's a good question, complex in a way. I wish (laughs) I could give a one easy answer for that. What comes to my mind I'm thinking about would be is that, first of all, I just, I do need to love myself. Mm Uh, if I need you to love me in order for me to be loved, I'm going to put you in a 24-7 job that you're not going to be able to complete. Mm-hmm. So that sense of, a sense of healthy self-worth. Now, even saying that sometimes in certain cultures sounds like narcissism, <laughs> but I would put narcissism on a continuum of narcissism that we think about in the industry or whatever versus would almost be codependency in the middle of that would be a classic word like loving your neighbor as yourself. Mm. Uh, but if I give you the responsibility of loving me, I'm going to make a job that you can't pull off. Mm. So it's important to love yourself because sometimes we can find ourselves needing to be loved by someone in order to be loved. And I think that creates a problem. Mm. Secondly, is that it's really good that we're able to ask inquiring questions of someone and find out if we're comfortable with the diversity of the answer rather than the same answer that I have. Right. I think that's really important because quite often in, in developing relationships, we quite often hear the language of, well, I have so much in common, we're so much alike, and we actually are not. Hmm. And quite often at some point with couples, they will say something like, we just have so much that is different about each other, and that's the reason we shouldn't exist, hmm. versus mm-hmm. recognize our differences make us unique together. If we're able to hold that, then again, we have to evaluate what are the differences because some of the differences really should be non-negotiable and maybe the relationship shouldn't exist. But there is this kind of like being able to find the uniqueness of us rather than the similarity of us is really important. And then also the other thing I was saying would be is just how do I find a way that I can love myself and it's out of that expression I have the capacity to love others. Mm-hmm. I love that. I don't know if that's helpful, but that's yeah, where no, I, that's I, love where that. I, I think that's that's yeah, I'm staying grounded in who you are while yeah. also recognizing comfortability in the relationship to have differences mm-hmm. and you know, how do you come to the table when you have those differences? Yeah. Uh, one r- relational expert, science expert would describe that actually about 70% of what romantic couples subjects are talking about 70% of them, they actually will disagree on. There's only about 30% about common ground. Mm-hmm. So parenting, yeah. um, sexual libido, finances, how we, what you think about money, uh, status, all kinds of things. They won't be the same. We're learning to live with that tolerance without lowering the characterological essence of a person. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I love or that. succumbing to something uh, out of our own sense of inadequacy where we will then comply to things that we actually don't have a wholehearted agreement too. Sure. Uh, yeah. That's the other way that that t- tends right. to go as well. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. 
if someone's finding themselves in a relationship that's feeling like hard to connect, I mean, this is kind of like what you do with your occupation, but like, how would you recommend they start to address that with their partner? Mm -hmm. Well, great questions. Some of what we've already built on is can we recognize that we can have diversity? Some of that is we're learning it's important that we are repairing. So yeah. sometimes our harder conversations might be coming along too far, sometimes almost even too late is what I would suggest. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to address that if it gets to that level without a third party as a part of that process. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, somebody that hopefully is biased or an advocate for the relationship and isn't biased to one versus the other uh, mm -hmm. because that doesn't help. So there's this almost like this, if you both wanna work on the relationship, I'm an advocate for working with you on the relationship. So there's an aspect of that. So sometimes when we can get to that, I think the earlier we step into those things, the less it feels like it's, it's concrete. Sure. Yeah. So there's more possibility that, like we were sharing earlier, that we can talk about our feelings, learning how to distinguish between feelings and meanings that we've established that have become non-negotiable almost. Yeah. So the earlier we step into that and share feeling rather than meaning, the better that has an outcome. If we've moved into a, a phase where it's much more entrenched and almost non-negotiable, uh, I don't have a good resource other than recommending you probably need some help with a third party to that. Yeah. Here on Misconnections, we recommend therapy. Yeah. <laughs> we won't stop talking about it. Create a safe space. In a way that's almost obnoxious. <laughs> but I'll own it wholeheartedly. It does make me think, though, that oftentimes, especially in relationships that have been established over time or for yourself if you've yet to experience positive feedback from sharing your feelings mm -hmm. yeah. um, it can be hard to just say like i don't feel like we're really connecting mm -hmm. it can be hard to just say like the first thing because yeah. yeah you might need additional help or you might need you know to find other solutions to really dig into it mm -hmm. but sometimes just saying that first thing like you may be going on your life feeling like, this is great, right, everything's right. good. Um, and I might be sitting here thinking, I wish you would ask me the question. Mm. I wish we could talk about it. I wish something would come up. Because in this story, what I think is so beautiful about it is that there was a, a moment when our storyteller kind of became aware. Yes. Yeah. But that doesn't always happen where yeah. someone does that on their own and they mm. come to us. I'm curious if you have any thoughts, you know, with communication being such a big piece of connection and just like how to take a first step. If you're someone who is feeling that way in a relationship, obviously every relationship has a different context. Yeah. We don't know who the person is that they're talking to, but what are some of the ways you could think about saying that first comment to try to get the conversation started? Yeah. Well, one of the ways I would try to conceptualize the strategy underneath that kind of a important question is going to be in the area of attachment. And that's a, that's one of the big words of our day and time now mm -hmm. is attachment. Mm -hmm. I often more conceptualize our attachment strategies are more on a continuum rather than it's like a personality, like a fixed attachment style. And the simplified version is an avoidant attachment typically is going to be a person who doesn't express, has less emotional awareness in a way, but they will in their internal mind do something like, I'd really love for this to happen, but then they don't ask and they don't ask. And then when they finally make an invitation to their partner and their partner isn't accessible, they can go from zero to 60. Like, I knew it! You know, that kind of thing can happen. And so there's this lack of, of being able to ask for what we want. 
on an anxious attachment style, we tend to ask for what we want, but it might be somehow inladen with criticism as a part of it. So that makes that more challenging as well. Secure attachment, that's the best place when we're asking for, I'm feeling disconnected. Now, secure attachment for children is they ask for what they want, but they don't have the awareness that their parent or caregiver has any other need. Mommy, uh, see me, play with me, daddy, hold me, whatever. They don't go, how do you feel about that? Mm -hmm. It's age-appropriate narcissism, I would suggest. (laughs) Adult secure attachment, in my view, is that we have responsibility as well as a need. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying I have a need and are you able and what is helpful from my part that helps for that need to be met as well that is not codependency that is actually adult secure attachment Mm. and so sometimes when we have sense of disconnection i'm feeling really disconnected i really long for us to do x whatever x is and what helps you to feel connected that's to me is the space where two adults are offering secure attachment now, we live in a world where we go, I will always love you, yeah. uh, and we have songs that are very... Fantastical? Yes. <laughs> not reality. <laughs> not reality, and they range from codependency to narcissism in a way, but they sell great. <laughs> yes, yes. But adult secure attachment to me is a sense of responsibility. Mm. Somehow, if we can in that space, we're trying to find a way to express what we need, but we're also trying to express or discover what our partner's need is as well. And if we can find the common space there, then hopefully our needs are being met while we're also participating in, in meeting the needs of the other person. I wish I could say that always works, but again, that depends on what's going on into the relationship uh, yeah. where there can be c- concerns or challenges that are not really sustainable too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and what you learn is just more information for the next conversation you might yeah. have. Yeah. Yeah, and if we bump up against resistance, we're gathering information that we know it's not safe to share our sure. needs. Mm-hmm. And again, that's sometimes where we're going, well, if this isn't working, what would it be like to bring someone else into that process? Mm-hmm. And usually one person is more receptive, the other one is pretty, you know, we don't have a problem. Why do we need to bring somebody else? Mm-hmm. If we talk about a problem, that means we have a problem. Yeah. yeah. You know? So that that's typically more what happens on the avoidance side. You have given us so much to think about, to apply. And I know for me personally, I see that like we have such an opportunity to take responsibility Mm -hmm. for the connections that we desire. And a way about doing that is embodying it. Yes. Not thinking about it cyclically, (laughs) but actually embodying it. So Mm. thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, when we're able to ask for what we long for, but there's like a respect of the other person's needs as well, I would say that's a beautiful space to be in. Mm -hmm. And the story feels like one person hasn't been asking for the needs of the other and is missing things ranging from when she's dealing with her mother's health and she's on her own and driving on her own. Uh, So there's this lack of awareness. And... uh, he comes to that awareness and he makes this significant change in his life. You notice she's actually there at his games and she's supporting him and she's creating ways for him. And then he's with her in planting things out in the garden, those sort of things. Mm-hmm. And to me, they're in a, a really tender space to where a relationship feels like it does have that reciprocity yeah. of care of each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such a beautiful story. And I love the way that we've been able to have a conversation with you and understanding how we can participate in our own version of that misconnection and reconnection and developing dynamics that can be helpful for 
our own journey. So thank you so yeah. much for your yes, time. You. We absolutely appreciate it. We'll have so much to think about and continue. We'll probably listen to this a few times and take notes. <laughs> I will. I will. And listeners, if you are interested in working or meeting with Rick, please check out La Vie Counseling Center at www.lavicounseling.org. We want to end this episode by hearing from our amazing storyteller once again. We asked him what he thought he missed from this misconnection. He said, When I look back at the relationship that my partner and I have now, and I look back and I could have had it years ago, that's what I've missed. I just was blinded and now I can see. So I do regret not having the relationship a little bit longer or sooner, but I'm glad we have it now, so I'm happy with that. We also believe that for every misconnection, there can be something gained. Our storyteller said, you know, when you get married, you have this idea of the perfect relationship, stuff like that. And I'm in it. It's true. You can really have that perfect relationship. And I think the thing I've gained the most is the freedom of communication between us. It's just so freeing. This is Misconnections. Thanks for listening. I'm Elizabeth Wyndham. And I'm Elizabeth Villa. Special thanks to this week's guest, Rick Jackson, and our truly amazing storyteller. You know who you are. This episode's story was written by Charlotte Beach. The story was voiced by Samuel Wyndham. Misconnections is co-hosted, produced, and edited by us, the Elizabeths, Elizabeth Villa and Elizabeth Wyndham. Our theme music is Feeling by Danielle Musto. Have a Misconnections story to share with us? Email us at elizabeths at mistconnectionspod.com. And please follow, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube.